So this <clears throat> this evening I'd like to continue with the reflections on not self and self acceptance. Can I check? Is this a good distance for the, from the mic? Anybody not hear me very well? Yeah, you don't hear it so well. It's a little low. Okay. <clears throat> Let's try that. that. I can already hear that sounds a little bit. Is that better? Okay, and just then we need to go to the other side. Is it too much feedback or is it good enough? It's good enough. Okay, great. Okay. <clears throat> so I want to start with a classic story from the East about the teaching of not-self, which is also sometimes referred to as emptiness of self. Emptiness, when it's used in the Buddhist teachings, is not referring to something being deficient or lacking. Emptiness is that when we look deeply into a thing, we keep finding that there's not some final thing we can point to and say, that's it. Right, has got no inherent core to it. In fact, it's consonant with what scientists see these days as we look more and more into something, there's more and more and more and more space. So the story goes like this. Once upon a time, there is, uh, in the dawning of a day, of one day, it's changing from nightfall to dawn, but it's still dark, a man decides to uh, get in his little rowboat at the side of a river <coughs> and do a little voyage across the river from one side to, uh, across the lake from one side to the other so he sets off and it's still dark and he's doing his rowing and he uh, sees another guy in another rowboat coming from the opposite shore and he sort of notices, but then as he carries on, he notices that this other guy's course uh, of travel seems to be heading for his, all right? So he sort of steers out the way, and this looks like this guy's determined, and he keeps heading for him, so he's moving out the way, working really hard to get out of the way, and eventually they collide, as that boat from the other shore collides into him. And if you were that rower, indeed, that first rower, what would be your response what would be your set response? In this particular case, the guy was, stupid idiot. It was more of this kind of angry response. Well, I was trying to get out of your way. And meanwhile, as he's getting hot and flustered and bothered and you know righteous and all the rest of it, he, the dawn light comes and the dawning day reveals what, dear students? The dawning day reveals that there is no oarsman in the other boat there is nobody inside it the boat had lost its mooring from the side of the lake and according to the weather conditions had blown on its own course and collided with man number one right what would be the response then in seeing that there was no oarsman there would kind of change the view wouldn't it all the up in arms, or if we might be someone with the other kind of response, which is, you know, the, the standard English response when someone bashes into you. Sorry, 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 sorry I'm here. Sorry I exist. 
I'm allowed to say that because I'm... right. Um, but whatever the conditioned pattern, when we see that there's no oarsman there, oh, it's kind of... The whole view shifts. And the, the moral of the story is, such is the view of the wise ones. They know there is no oarsman in the boat. Neither the other boat nor ours. Now we have to be very careful with this teaching, as you can probably tell already. And it's not something the Buddha would necessarily teach to everybody and teach immediately either. It needs quite some steadiness to not have this teaching just take us right up into our head and start going, well, does that mean I'm not here? And and what about responsibility? And what about ethics? And what about... Um, you know, we can get very, very busy with it. It really becomes an important contemplation when we can ground that um, teaching through our direct experience rather than just our ideas about it. So hopefully in this talk I can, I'll point to how we can see this for ourselves that it's not something esoteric, um, it's not something that uh, means that we don't have um, choices. It doesn't mean we're just blown by fate. It doesn't mean this at all. So hopefully we can get this a little bit more this evening. <clears throat> So before I pick that up, there were a few questions coming out of the groups that today that I said I would pick up a little bit, and I'm going to start with one of them. Somebody asked me to pick up from last night when I said, if we're not using the inner critic as our guidance, then what guides us? If we're not using the harsh um, judgment of right and wrong to guide our ethics and morality, what will guide our ethics and morality? <clears throat> and in a way, it's a similar, it's the same question as what guides ethics and morality from the perspective of the understanding of emptiness, actually. So I want to back step a little bit and say a little bit what the Buddha would have said about the guidance for ethics and morality, as that came up a few times today. So he has ethics as the foundation of the path, very, very clearly. Um, and in, when you hear the formulation of the teachings in some countries, in some more um, countries of Buddhist origin countries, you sometimes, well, you often hear it taught as three pieces, sila, samadhi, and panya. Sila is the ethics, and it's the foundation Samadhi is the gatheredness, the collectedness, and the panya is the wisdom. And that the ethics is the foundation for wisdom. Our action of how we, uh, um, through body, speech, and mind, behave in the world is a foundation stone for our mind. Clearly, it's obvious, really, isn't it? And is a gift to our world also. <clears throat> So he has the ethical precepts, which we spoke about on the first night. And another thing that he talked about on the conventional level, which I think is interesting, is what he called the guardians of the world. So I'm not in the emptiness territory at this point. 
um, what he called the guardians of the world, which in the Pali language, the language of the Buddha, are called Hiri and Otapa. And Hiri is basically about self-respect. And it's what actions do I want to bring forth in the world that I will feel good about. Right? That there's a kind of natural uh, uh, feedback loop of self-respect that comes from certain actions I do. And certain actions I do that don't lead to that. And that's not based on a harsh judgment. It's based on a kind of an intelligent... Um, feedback loop, we, certain things we do are simply more in accord with um, the nature of things, of the totality of our interconnectedness. Certain actions simply resonate more harmoniously with being all in this together. Right? We are all in this together. And as we go further in practice, we get that more, that we're all in this together on this amazing blue-green planet at this time in history. For better and for worse, we're all in this together. So certain actions simply are in harmony with that. We know that. You all know that. Certain things, when we're acting as if we are separate from the world... Those actions are not harmonious. They have a feedback in us that is painful, is not resonant. And he talked about otapa, which is wanting to bring forth actions that... um, It's an interesting one to not marry it with the inner critic, but wanting to bring forth actions that um, are not abusive of others and that I will respect myself for in relation to others and others will respect me for. Right? And you can see how it can easily, with our splitting around right and wrong and good and bad that many of us have inherited, <coughs> that we could start to pick that up from that same perspective. But it comes from this intelligence of, yes, there are certain actions that we simply are more able to respect. So that's the kind of on the, on the conventional level. And I'll hopefully in the talk I'll get to what it looks like from the emptiness perspective of, our, of the guidance for our actions. So let's see. So let's look a little bit at self. Ourself, yourself, myself. Um, when the Buddha talked about not self, he was not positing that you do not exist. It's not an annihilationist perspective that you can hear in some teaching traditions that we're not, this is all completely an illusion. He does not say you do not exist, simply that you are not existing in the way that you think you are. The self that you take yourself to be is not, has no absolute inherent core, and if you investigate that, that, you will see that, and that will be in the service of freeing you up to take your place in the totality, free, not compelled by the patterns of our personality. <coughs> 
So on a very practical level, um, and remember in the instructions this morning that Matt was speaking about the characteristic of impermanence. He said, yeah, everything that comes into being, everything, body, feelings, thoughts, perceptions, patterns, mountains, oceans, everything that comes into being is on a journey, on a trajectory of passing. If it comes into birth, it can only go one way, which is to peak, take its time, in the, have its moment in the sun, and start to drop back and fade away as the nature of things tells us, happens to everything. So the Buddha said, look into this. He also said, look into the characteristic that things are not self. He didn't say no self, he said not self. So when we look into experience, directly, moment to moment, if we keep looking through the immediacy, with that gathered mind that is brighter and a little more steady, like a bright light, we look into the breath. We see it clearly. We let it be our teacher. And what do we see? Yes, it arises and passes. It's not mine to hold on to. It comes. I didn't ask for it to come. Somehow it began when I was born. And it will surely end when I die. It's of the nature of things. The perspective of not-self shows us that the breath is not mine. It's not my breath, is it? When we're sitting in this little isolated bubble, it looks like it's my breath. And it's not your breath. And I really hope it's not your breath, because I don't, you know, we have these views about it's, it's my air. But actually, we don't have to look far, even on the physical level, to consider, really, you really think that's your breath? <laughs> I, I don't know what the science of this is, but probably all the air that's now in my lungs, apart from the bits that have gotten stuck and, you know, where I've sort of contracted, has somewhere along the line been in your lungs? Right, we're not so happy about that part of totality always, are we? <laughs> that we share, that we share all of it, right down to the physical inheritance, actually, of the physical gift of this land. It actually doesn't belong to someone. And we know that cognitively, but how able are we to live that realization such that we are free in the midst of the nature of things? So we can investigate not-self. We can see that if I hold on to any experience as mine, this one is mine, we suffer, right? When we cling on to my breath as mine, it's my breath, I should be able to have the right breath, I should have a deep breath, it should be a spiritual breath, should be a nice breath. Whatever it is, whatever kind of um, imposition we have, that it's mine, if it were mine, I would be able to control it. That's part of the definition if something is mine. It's mine, right? But it's not mine. We don't, our mind states, the mind states that you've had, you know when we we feel sad, we feel happy, we feel despairing, we feel hateful, we feel loving, we feel spacious. Those mind states too are not mine. We cling on to them. Oh great, finally, I've got the happy one. 
I've had the happy sitting, I've had the happy expanded sitting. Now I'm in for the long haul. (laughs) And then someone treads on our toe or comes in late and we get irritated and we think they have bust it, right? Someone else's fault or my fault, matter, same, same delusion, right? The mind state is not mine. We wake up feeling a bit groggy and foggy and fed up of being here. It's a mind state. We think it's mine. It's my mind state, so then I have to fix it. It's my mind state, so I have to do something about it. What about if we see that it's part of the nature of things? We take our hands off it, and actually it changes when we, um, it changes according to the conditions changing, just like the weather changes when the conditions are there for the weather to change. We don't wake up in the morning at Guy House and think, today's a really good day for me to feel grumpy. I think I'll do grumpy today. Right? We don't, we don't, um, we're not in control in the way that we think we are. This is very relieving, and even a man of great discipline from our history, um, Mohandas K. Gandhi, a man of great discipline and ethics. Listen to see what he has to say about this self. He says, it's very sweet, I like this. He says, I have just three enemies. My favorite enemy, the most easily influenced for the better, is my old friend, the British Empire. The second enemy, my formidable foe, with whom I have some luck, is the Indian people. But my foremost opponent is a man named Mohandas K. Gandhi. With him, I seem to have very little influence. <laughs> right? And it's not that he didn't have choice and, you know, a clear ethical guide and all of that. But what is this that we take so much to be me? What if we took our hands off? and started to trust that what's arising here is arising in order to be known, to be seen, to be liberated, to be allowed to flow back into the nature of things. And that if I don't push it and pull it and say, this is mine and I shouldn't have that bit and I don't want to be that, actually there is an intelligent harmony for things to self-liberate towards greater freedom, love and wisdom. And that takes trust, and the faith deepens over time. We don't have to come already with great faith. We might, but we practice and we test the water, like somebody yesterday said. Um, Wow, I feel myself um, spreading out, widening. Is it really okay? Is it really okay to not have to fix and control and... They weren't her exact words, but I'm paraphrasing here, right? uh, And what was coming up for her was, oh yeah, I can start to trust this. I can trust it to some degree. And then the voice comes in, well, that's enough. No more. No more freedom, that's enough, right? And then we test a little bit more, that there is something wholesome, actually, about letting go. So... I'm going to use the word self here because it can be used many, many ways in different contexts. I'll probably make it synonymous with the word personality in this talk. Personality. 
And we could usefully look at our personality as a number of different programs that are ready to roll if we need them. I like to think of it sometimes on my little Mac uh, laptop. You know, at the bottom there's that dot. (laughs) I'm really bad with the language. Anyway, there's the thing at the bottom that has all the programs that are ready to go, right? Like the Skype's ready and the Safari's ready and all these little programs are ready to go. And sometimes they're even jumping up and down, really ready to go. Right? They're, they're, they're sort of, look at me, look at me, I'm here, I'm the program, that's, I'm the Skype program. We have those programs, and all of us have a number of different ones. As we practice, the unfortunate part, actually it's very good news, but doesn't look so good, isn't so um, flattering, is that we start to find more of them. More of these little programs, which we didn't know were programs. We thought they were us. They thought they, that they were who we were. And they're jumping up and down, and with an untrained mind, here's the metaphor, but it it, it goes quite far, the metaphor, with an untrained mind, without the gathered collectedness of attention to look deeply, we inadvertently keep clicking on these little programs, and they fill the whole desktop. They fill us, and the world looks like it appears through that program. For example, I might have a program... That's and it's a very common, um, common one of uh, believing somewhere that I'm worthy of rejection. For example, right? I might have one of that. That might be a conditioning that I have, and our conditioning is there due to ways we've interacted with body, with family, with culture. That's that's what conditioning is, right? Let's say I have that program. It's ready to roll. Somebody in the corridor here looks up at me when I walk past and they have a strange expression on their face. How am I likely to see that? If I'm very primed, if this program has been up and clicked on very often recently, meaning I've been believing in it, investing in it, I will see that face as a confirmation of my rejectability. Does that ring any bells with anyone? And you may have different programs. We might have a I'm I'm completely fantastic program. (laughs) And, and And we kind of keep seeing confirmation of that in the world. Well, yes, look, I really am. Right? It's not more free, it's a little bit more pleasant for a while, but it's not more free, it's equally as deluded, <laughs> actually. Pro- There's nothing wrong with programs. We, we take on programs, programming and conditioning, because some of it's very, very useful. For example, you know, it's, a, it's a template, it's a, it's a pre-written program, it's a, it's a, it's a pattern. For example, our language, learning a language which takes us a, a while when we're little or when we're older, that's a program. It's a program, it's a template, it's, a, it's, a, it's ready to roll so that when I wake up in the morning, if my functioning of the mind is okay, and then that can change as we 
if we get certain illnesses of the mind. But if that functioning is okay, I wake up in the morning and I know how to speak English already. I don't have to learn it again. I don't have to be original and create a new language with you. Freedom doesn't mean suddenly I'm, you know, acting out of the relative use of programs. They're helpful. But on the level of the personality, on the level of um, our interface with the world, the programs can feel like a cage or a mask or some kind of shell around us, keeping us separate. The inner and the outer become two separate worlds. So let me give some examples. And actually, remember this morning I talked about being an organ of repetition. That's when we feel that we're repeating the same things again. Somebody presses that button and I react like this. You know those kind of things? You get it on the road when you're driving quite a bit, don't you? You, can, you, thought, you thought you were a nice person until you, you know, somebody cuts you up on the right or something. Or somebody kind of doesn't leave room for you. We have a lot of that around here, right? And that can be a place for many people, not everybody, of certain programs that arise that are based on views that we may not even know we had. One of my students recently came uh, to, to meet with me and said, oh, somebody just, uh, I can't remember what happened, but some one of those road incidences where somebody didn't give way or somebody sort of, you know, got big and muscly and sort of tried to threaten through the window and all of that kind of stuff. And he said, he said, I could feel all the urge to get out of my car and stand there and show him that I wasn't going to be messed with. Right? That was his pattern. Is the pattern. Is the program. Is one of the programs. And all the adrenaline was there for it. All the ready-to-roll was there for it. But there was enough wisdom. Actually, I've been down that road a thousand times. It doesn't actually lead to more. Freedom, peace, relationship for myself or for this world. And that's when we can start to pull back and see a little bit more clearly. Underneath that program, there will be a worldview that we may not have seen, which is probably something like, you know, no one's going to get the better of me or... Or can even have a, some personal pieces of, I'm not going to be walked over again. Right? There's some history feeding right into those programs. And sometimes then we can have counter programs, right? So we may have, have we may have the angry program, or we may not have the angry program, but we then react and I'm supposed to be good now. Now that I'm a meditator, I'm not supposed to have all those dodgy things going on. I suppose to smile at the bloke in the car when he you know, we have another idea of who we're supposed to be. And it's not a bad idea to smile at the bloke in the car or the woman in the car. It's not a bad idea. But sometimes we have another layer, another mask, another program obscuring the first. And we can have the being good program. We can have the being nice program. And we can sometimes feel. It it does not mean that goodness and niceness is all programs. It does not mean that at all. 
But sometimes we can feel the layering, the thickness, the thickness between us and reality, the inner and the outer, the perception, as one of my teachers used to say, that there are two things in this world, he said. There is the world and there is me. When it can feel like that sometimes, right? That the layering has got thick and we've got a few programs to to look through, to shed the light of awareness on. And this will be for our benefit. Freedom is about not being compelled. It's about not being compelled. It's where action can arise from born from wisdom and compassion. So we may wish to act in the world, absolutely. Say yes to this, say no to that. Want to bring forth something here. Want to not give energy to other things. But I think probably we all know the difference of where that is compelled and where it comes from a place that has wisdom, compassion and spaciousness. And in our path, we are discerning the difference. It's not like we have to already know that we shouldn't have programs. We do. We can have really wholesome programs. Really wholesome programs. In fact, the Buddha said, set up a whole bunch of wholesome programs. This will help you settle. This will help you relax. This will help you widen. This will resource you for freedom. For example... Um, one, one, one of my new wholesome programs is coming to mind, so I'm going to share it, share it with you. Um, even though I'd like to think of a, somebody else's example, so I don't have to appear to be blowing my own trumpet. <laughs> but, but actually, it's a simple practice that I took on quite about six or seven years ago. A wholesome program. The Buddha has. Um, The meditative piece is just one piece of the Buddha's quite brilliant map for freedom. There are many, many pieces to it. And one of them is the cultivation of beautiful and wholesome qualities. Qualities of being that are more harmonious, that are harmonious with the truth that we are interconnected. Right? So even if we don't fully realize it yet in every moment, we can pick up certain qualities and cultivate and develop them. One of them is generosity. He um, spoke about that a lot, actually, to uh, yeah, very, very on many occasions, the power of generosity, that if we act with it, it actually starts to free us up to live more in accord with the truth of that things aren't mine. Right? We tend to think with our resources, our skills, our money, that it's mine. If we work in such a way that um, recognizes it certainly isn't. It certainly isn't. It's come to me due, due to causes and conditions, my skills, my health, my good fortune, whatever level that looks like. So this particular one, inspired by a friend and colleague who regularly travels to Cornwall, and he decided many years ago as a practice to pay for the toll fee over the Tamar Bridge for himself and the person behind him. One of those random acts of generosity, just for the hell of it, right? we could say. 
And I was quite inspired by that. When those random acts of generosity uh, piece came out, whenever that was, 20 years ago or something, I always thought, ah, people trying to be good. But actually, yeah, people trying to be good. Great. (laughs) Great. Yes, it doesn't mean we have cleared up all of our, you know, shadowy bits and our tricky bits, but we're not kidding ourselves that they're not there. But we can act in such a way. So I decided that I go to Wales twice a year, sometimes three times a year. I decided to pay the toll for the person behind me as well, which is now the princely sum of six pounds, something or other. Not not that much, really. It's interesting with wise action, with skillful action, because if we always wait for the moment that we feel like doing something wholesome, <laughs> some of us would be waiting a long time, right? There's a skill in picking up a skillful program, a wholesome program. I need to wipe my eyes. So I have it as a practice. It's a program. It's not an original action each time I go there. I've made a commitment to myself to do it, whether I feel like it, whether the person has a nicer car than me, whatever the conditions, I'm going to act in such a way because this is for my benefit. Hopefully it's for theirs, but it surely is for mine. Every time we act with generosity, it softens the grip of self. It softens the grip of I, me, and mine. This is what the Buddha was speaking about. He said, no thing whatsoever should be taken as I, me, or mine. Nothing can be grasped as I, me, or mine. This is very different from the compulsive pattern program that some people have to keep giving themselves away you know that one where it's like oh I'm not important and we compulsively give ourselves away for the other this is not what he was speaking about the skill cultivation of the skillful action is still very much with a sense of you here In this location, heart, belly, body, and mind. Conscious, not compelled. Yeah, I'm going to take on this practice because it is for my benefit and yours, all being well. That we have no control of. That we have no control of. So that's a program. It's a wholesome program. Let's see. Time, time moves fast when there's lots to say. Time moves slowly sometimes when we're on the cushion, doesn't it? <laughs> that's, a, that's also a very interesting um, investigation, if you ever want to do it, is how that sense of self, when it arises, is always in relation to time. It's always in relation to time. The truth that the Buddha, the depth of the truth that the Buddha was speaking about, the understanding of that which is timeless, he said, 
He invited people to come to the Dharma. He said, come and see for yourself. Come and discover for yourself that which is timeless, that invites investigation, that is here and now, that is available for each wise one to know for themselves. Come and see that for yourself. That's the the depth that he's pointing at. The sense of separate self that arises, of me and my, me and mine, always arises in relationship to time. For example, you're on the cushion, your knee hurts, your mind aches, you're getting bored, and the thought arises, when's Matt going to ring the bell? Right? When's Matt going to ring the bell? Surely it must be time. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe he hasn't looked at the clock. You know, whatever your mind starts doing with it. Okay, that's the mind getting busy in time. What's actually arising in this moment? Self is arising in relation to other, which in this case is Matt or me, whoever it is, someone. And the sense of um, that limited, constricted sense, and then the story can build. It's like they're doing it to me. Right? Who, who gave them the authority to put me under so much torture? Right? And then the story builds and builds and builds, and I've written my feedback letter to Gaia House about having teachers that don't fall asleep at the front. Right? The papancha, we call it, the proliferation of the mind. The stories build, the stories build, and we start to see the world through something that we haven't caught, which is in this moment there's something hard to bear, and I'm not able to know it yet. I'm not able to contact it yet, whether it's physical, emotional, mental, spiritual. One of the markers of the separate sense of self is that it's um, separate. We feel separate. There's the world and there's me. It has a rigidity to it, a brittleness to it, a fixedness to it. When we have taken something to be mine, my mind, my feelings, my body, there's as if there is a kind of shell around us that is a little impenetrable. And we look out from that separate sense of self and feel the isolation or the abandonment, or most pertinently, the loss of contact with something that we long for and yearn for, which is truly the contact with the depth and the breadth of who we are. In the moment that we shrunk around any condition, in the moment that I've said, this anger, that's me, I shouldn't have it, or I should have it, we've shrunk around a particular condition and the magnificent, spacious totality has been reduced to a small, tight thing, and we feel terrible. Not so much because the anger's there. That doesn't feel great. It's hot and fiery and unpleasant. But because we've lost contact with this vast, mysterious truth of what we are, See. 
As we mature along the path, as we go along, or one of the markers of the developing soul, the developing being, or the on the way to the Buddha, on the way to the Buddhahood, on the way, is that there's more malleability in the consciousness. It's not quite so fixed. It's not quite so rigid. It's not quite so hanging on to this is me. No, this really is me. And holding on for dear life, as someone said yesterday. She said, normally I'm holding on for dear life. But right now I'm noticing this expansion and this softening and no one's expecting anything from me and I'm just here. Right? Normally we're holding on for dear life. I think I want to give one more example um, before I talk about the developing, as we're developing along the path. So one example is, I can give a, a, a less wholesome example of myself. Being here 15 or so years ago on retreat, on a several weeks retreat, and um, any of you who've s- sat with your mind long enough, and hopefully you have by now, you can see that certain sensitivities arise. We get triggered by things. And our response can sometimes feel like a little out of proportion with what's actually going on. We know that from our life as well, right? Have you ever had that? It's like, he only looked at me strangely, but how come I want to, you know, murder him? It's, it's way out of proportion with the, with the situation, right? So on this particular occasion, um, I had the yogi job of washing up after supper, it, but it was between retreats, so there weren't many people here, and I was on my own doing the job, which was a bit of a stretch. Sometimes wasn't always so busy at Guy House then. Yogi uh, retreats were thin on the ground, so I had the after tea job on my own. It took me the whole time to do it, which I was a little bit resentful about. Thought that's normally the one where you get off lightly and can can come in. And I noticed that when I was cleaning the cupboard, which you had to buy the compost, those little compost buckets, I was cleaning the cupboard there, that there were some really horrible stains on it, some old tea stains that hadn't been painted or sanded or taken care of properly. And at the time, I was on the trust, on the board of the trust at Guy House. So I also felt a little responsible for how Guy House looked and should be. And as I was washing the cupboard and these tea stains wouldn't come off, really small detail, right? From the big picture, we can see that. Suddenly I was finding myself getting really angry. And first thought, well, I shouldn't be angry. It's only a cupboard. Get real, right? Now we try and coach ourselves. But every day I went back to the job, day two, day three, I saw these tea stains. I was getting more angry, getting righteous. Somebody should do something about this. Why hasn't somebody done something about this? Anybody know that kind of pattern about anything (laughs) in their life? Somebody needs to do something about this. Logical mind, sensible mind, it's only a tea stain, right? But things start to pull up some of the old patterning. And busy in my mind, writing the letter and getting on the trust and why haven't they cleaned it and why haven't they painted it and blah, blah, blah. Until fourth day, fifth day, I'm in there, anger arises and then the moment of awareness is there. I'm in the spin. This is the spin. This is the spin. Acknowledging the spin as I talked about today, recognizing this, this is suffering. I'm the one who's suffering here. 
Everyone else walks past, nobody cares about the tea stain. It's not the point. I'm in the spin here. Acknowledging the spin, putting my feet firmly back on the ground. Then listening to that sense of self that was spinning around me, that I had believed as so completely real. I listened carefully what it said. Nobody ever, nobody ever takes care of things. And we can start to hear the grooves in the record when we listen deeply to these old programs that are being surfaced to be liberated. Nobody's, nobody cares, nobody cares about me. Oh, there's the dawning. This is the Nobody Cares About Me program. Oh, and in that moment, listening carefully from that which hears, that which sees, that which hears the program is not the program. That which listens deeply to the suffering is not the suffering, but is intimate with it, so intimate, but comes from an entirely different dimension than this spinning, tight web of myself that I feel like I have to fix the world from. So when we, we sit with ourselves courageously long enough the things come round again and again, the Groundhog Day bit. Here it is. Oh, here's the suffering. I'm the one that's suffering here. It's not because he should have painted the cupboard. Right. With these very mundane examples, it's a little easier to see. Right. But the programs, one of the um, markers of these patterns and programs is that they sometimes have a sense of urgency in them. This kind of urgency, agitated urgency. Or a sense of reluctancy, right? Reluctancy is almost like the other side. It's kind of undercharged and wanting to pull back away from the world. Again, I want to highlight this is different than wanting to take action that's needed in the world. That's not the same thing that may have some urgency in it. This is about where our whole system wires up and is compelled. And we discern the difference. So that which hears the suffering, in fact, this um, statue here on the left of me, on your right, of Kuan Yin, the Bodhisattva, the, the um, I don't want to try to translate Bodhisattva, I'll tell you. But she's the bodhisattva. She's the practitioner who's practicing for the benefit of all beings right? and serving all beings for waking up. One of her qualities is that she hears. She is known as she who hears the cries of the world. She who hears the cries of the world and pours her healing balm on them. She who hears, he who hears, that which hears is vast, is timeless, is available, is here and now, and is our birthright. 
she who hears the cries of the world is intimate with them in a way that nothing else is. It's not intimate like, oh, she's just being nice to me. It's intimate because she knows that there is no difference between a cry that happens there and a cry that happens here. She is intimate with it, but she's not bound by it. She's not saying, that's who I am. You know, when we do that, it's like, oh my God, you're crying. I've got to do something about it. Or, oh my God, I'm crying. I have to do something about it. But she's there. He's there. Intimate but not bound. How does that happen? How does that miraculous thing happen? And we all know it. It's not like none of us know this. We've all probably experienced, on at least to some degree, a kind of love or if we haven't, maybe we've intuited it, a kind of love that is not about me being nice to you or being good, although it is good, or having to do the right thing, but a love that is effortless because it is of the nature of things. And that kind of compassion is something that when we're in the midst of, in ourselves or with another, it has the effect of softening some of the web that we've spun around ourselves to try to protect ourselves very often from the pains that we've all encountered, the knocks and the bumps and the perils and the pitfalls of being human. I remember once, and sometimes we can feel a bit ambivalent about that kind of love, even though we might long for it in ourselves or with another. I remember once going to um, a conference of where it had a, where where there, were, there was a Buddhist uh, temple opening, actually, where there were lots of elders of the monks and nuns of the tradition, and some of them, not all, we're all different, but some of these. There was one particular man a great elder from our tradition. He was really old from Thailand and he was sitting there with a bunch of other monks and he was a kind of old, respected elder and there he was beaming gently, nothing special, nothing out, out of the ordinary but there was something that I was drawn to. We recognize true personhood when we see it. We know it because we are it. We're just a little encapsulated still to different degrees. We're a little encapsulated with a few programs and shells and webs. And I recognized it. I didn't have words for it at the time, but I was drawn to go closer. And as I found myself wanting to go and pay respects and um, bow before this beautiful being, I could got so far and about six meters away from him, it's like, that's enough. That's close enough. The heart was, I wasn't quite ready to melt. I wasn't ready yet to feel the effect of that love, that love that is like an emissary, a messenger from the timeless beyond. 
I wasn't yet ready. I could manage so much, but it felt a little threatening. Have you ever had that experience where the love can feel a bit threatening? It's like, oh, enough, <clears throat> enough. The developing practitioner, the developing soul, the developing heart-mind becomes more malleable. Our programs still arise. Our programs will still arise as far as I can see, and I'll tell you when I've got to the end. (laughs) So that happens. But our programs still arise. It's how we view it. What is the world view that happens when those programs arise? In the um, description of the path, the Buddha says that along the way, along our journey, different fetters drop away. Fetters like irons, irons that bind our ankles, you know, like prisoners. It's a funny old-fashioned word in English, that's why I'm translating it. The irons that bind our ankles, uh, if we're a prisoner... He said, different fetters drop away. And the first fetter, one of the first fetters to drop away, is the fetter of personality view. Personality view. And what that means is that we take our personality to be who we are. It's not that we don't have a personality. Even the wise ones have personalities. In fact, if you hang around beings who have done a lot of work, they really have personalities. It's like, wow, I thought you were supposed to have no personality. They're really themselves, you know, and they're really different, right? They're not sort of merged into one blamange. I think I used to think that about the path. Oh, well, if there's no self, then, you know, it'll all be rather tasteless and blamange-like as I develop. (laughs) Right? But actually, to the malleability, if we're taking those things less to be ourself, they may still arise. The pattern may arise, but we're not claiming it to be me. So the anger might arise. The, the righteousness might arise. The, um, oops, the reluctance, I don't do that. I don't do those kind of things might arise. But we're not bound by it. I have a beautiful, beautiful colleague and teacher, beautiful practitioner who he says and he's been practicing 40 or 50 years he says and he's very regal and beautiful and he says you know what when I walk into a room when I go into a new place the program still arises you're not going to be welcome here he said it still arises And I see it, and I touch it, and it drops away. It's not binding his action. It's softened, it's relaxed, it's not rigid, it's not so tight. It doesn't then have him doing compensatory patterns around it, like, oh, I've got to make myself welcome, I have to become someone lovely now, so I'm going to be welcomed. Right? No, that's dropped away. It's kind of undefended when you meet him. And he came to my door last year or the year before. I said, hi, how are you doing? And he said, ah, just checking out if I'm welcome. (laughs) And it wasn't saying, please show me I'm welcome. 
It wasn't saying, I've got to make my some, myself someone lovable. It was just, ah, oh, yeah, this peace. This peace that happens when the door opens. Mm-hmm. Here it is. It becomes more malleable. It's a lovely word. As we practice meditation, the mind, the chitta, the heart mind becomes more malleable. It's more flexible. It's more responsive. And here's the bit where we get to action. It's more responsive to life. That a wise being, a developed developed bodhisattva, they have a personality, but it will be more in relationship with what's happening in the moment. So they might be loving, they might be stern, they might be still, they might be humorous, they might be wrathful, they might be very tender. But they're not taking those things to be self. It moves and flexes as in relationship with the world. The sense of the old, limited personality feels out of relationship with where we are. We can feel it sometimes, right? It doesn't feel like I'm quite with you. It doesn't feel like I'm quite in contact right now. Oops. So... <clears throat> I have to save some of this for the ending tomorrow, I think. There'll be a little bit more. Hmm. Okay, maybe I'll just say two two more things before I end. So how to work with it? I think it's good to get practical here. How to work with it? These, um, this construction, the Buddha likened the metaphor he gave, it's like house building, it's like building a house. We keep building a house and calling it ourself and then we have to defend it. And actually if we put ourselves in the, in the practice uh, situation, the, it's hard work to keep constructing this house. It keeps wanting to shed because it's out of relationship with the nature of things. But how to work with it? Um, Firstly, recognizing that it's actually a program. This is already huge, because we've taken those things to be me. For example, um, I've had a program that's really shifted, actually, over the years, um, which was a very small thing, like when I'm in a group situation as a student, I never ask questions. I just... Whatever my conditioning was, I just didn't do that. It was actually because I was afraid to ask questions, but I sort of rationalized it to myself as I don't need to ask questions. And, um, but I didn't want to be ridiculed or, you know, whatever was my conditioning around that, which isn't, which isn't so important right now. Um, but I just took that to be who I was. I'm just someone who doesn't ask questions. That's just the truth. It's not a program. It's who I am. Until such a time, and some of you know this story, I was in the library there on a personal retreat listening to a tape, and those old-fashioned tapes, remember those? For those of you old enough to remember. Um, listening to a tape of a Dharma talk by Fred Von Allman, and I was on my own in the library, there was nobody there, and the talk finished, and he said, on the tape, through the Walkman, would anybody like to ask any questions? 
And with that, my body went hot, my face went red, my arms started to get tense, and my throat went dry. There was nobody there. Nobody. He wasn't there. There was no peers there. Nobody was there. But the button was pressed. The condition, it's like, oh my goodness, this is conditioning. Right? Wow, this is really conditioning. Right? So working with it is first recognizing it. And that's the beauty of practice, is that the situation lets us see that it isn't, may not be an absolute truth, this thing that feels so much like me. It may not be an absolute truth. In fact, it isn't. But we start to be able to hold that. Then we start to listen in. Oh, wow, this is the I'm terrified of being ridiculed program. Oh, dear love. Right, the compassion can start to arise. Then there's all the somatic part of it. The heat. You know, like I'm like something really bad's happening. Right? Wow, can I make room for these body sensations? They're not wrong. They're not bad. They're not that there's something arising, past arising into the present in order to be healed, in order to be met with wisdom and compassion. So the bodily level, the sensation level, the level of the emotion, and the level of the one who believes they are the program, the one who believes she's going to be ridiculed. We hear it all, touch it all, hold it all, with objectivity, right? That which is spacious and sincere. Aha, uh-huh, yeah, this is conditioning. And with sensitivity that is intimate, intimate with what's here. And that's how we begin to heal some of those old programs as they arise in our practice. And then we can play a little bit more next time someone says who'd like to ask a question and then for a number of years I'd still have the same sensations oh but I got to know it a little bit oh yeah this is the oh this is the I'm a scared scared of being ridiculed program oh it's okay and then slowly as the months and years progressed I found out sometimes I did want to ask a question and then we work those, without pushing ourselves, but without assuming that we always have to stay back. Right? And so finally, the Buddha, in synthesis, when he pointed to craving as the um, cause of suffering, one brilliant analysis around self, he said, it's the craving for becoming a self. I want to be someone or the craving for not becoming a self. I don't want to be someone. Both of those are craving. Both of those are either trying to lean forward to become someone we think we ought to be. I'm supposed to be great. I'm supposed to be shiny. I'm supposed to be miserable. I'm supposed to be. Or craving to not be anyone at all. That's not spiritual either. The middle way is the seat between the two. 
where I feel the contact with the earth. I breathe with my humanity. I cultivate the mind as best I'm able. Old programs run through and I work with them. And sometimes they open up and I contact that which is beyond the limited sense of self. But we don't have to wait for the programs to go away. This is the grist for the mill. This is what tempers us and shapes us into uh, the, the true person that we are. So I want to finish with a poem from Rilke. It's called Buddha in Glory. Center of all centers, core of cause, almond, self-enclosed and growing sweet. All this universe to the farthest stars and beyond them is your flesh, your fruit. Now you feel how nothing clings to you. Your vast shell reaches into endless space and there the rich, thick fluids rise and flow, illuminated in your infinite space. A billion stars go spinning through the night, blazing high above your head. But in you is the presence that will be when all the stars are dead. Let's sit for a minute to end.